0: I get to what I recognized as a Devar Torah, which is, hey, um, Dad, do you, do you want to describe what a Devar Torah is?
1: I canceled that
0: call. Oh, for crying out loud. Are you kidding me?
2: Give me one second.
0: Okay.
1: Are you on a
2: Yes. Thing? I canceled. I understand. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, Quack. You get me, you get me, you get me, you get me.
0: I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, your host, and we are talking politics and religion without killing each other. Co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew back in Ohio. And uh, if you like the show, please tell a friend about it. Share it. Subscribe, leave a review, do all that stuff on the interwebs and social whatevers. In future episodes I will be introducing this individual as my co-host, but today he is technically the guest and also happens to be my father and uh <laughs> Ronnie Nathan, hi Pops.
2: Hey, what's up Corey?
0: <laughs> nice to see you. Um so we'll get into a bit of Ronnie's background, growing up, his work in inner cities as a guidance counselor and Uh, conflict resolution specialist for, was it the city of New York or the board of ed, the New York city board of ed, technically.
2: New York city board of education, city of New York.
0: Yeah. Over the course of the show, we'll certainly hear his perspectives and politics and religion and how his views have evolved over time. And (laughs) maybe somewhere along the way, we'll talk some uh, New York Mets baseball. So uh, which not so coincidentally is where I'll start the conversation. On Ken Burns' great documentary, Baseball, I think it was Bob Costas who related a story. And in the story, he said, when I couldn't talk about anything else with my father, we could still talk about baseball. My dad and I have always had a special relationship, but there was a chapter in our lives when that relationship was very strained to say the least. But that moment and the way we dealt with it is in many ways the genesis of this project. Pop, do you want to share your perspective of that talk we had? It was actually a Thanksgiving
2: morning almost exactly 20 years ago. Your recollection of the talk is much different than mine, especially as it relates to your mother.
0: Right. Well, that's why I'm asking you first. You get first dibs, and then I'll correct all of the errors in your ways.
2: (laughs) Um, As I recall, we got a phone call where you
1: announced to your mother and I that you had become a
0: born again Christian. You're already completely wrong. I <laughs> <laughs> so
2: Tell a story.
0: No. You, so we, we took a red eye and landed literally Thanksgiving morning, if I remember correctly. Okay. So you didn't know anything about this, but as soon as we landed, I was all bleary eyed. I, I don't sleep on planes, even if it's a red eye, but. We sat outside on the porch at 15 Scott Lane. And, and that's I what remember. I told you first. You didn't know this was a surprise to you. Okay. And we ended up having a two hour talk. And then I told mom. So did, do you remember now?
1: <laughs> I
2: remember sitting on the porch. I remember a long conversation and I remember my emotional reaction, but I don't remember the substance of the conversation.
0: Right. So we had a very, uh, It it was very analytical. You were very, I I could tell that you were tense, but it it was mostly you put on your counselor's hat to the degree that you could. And a a running theme in this show is going to be help me understand. So you put on the help me understand mindset throughout that conversation.
2: (laughs) Can I interrupt you? Yeah, sure. I think what the audience needs to know at least a non-Jewish
1: audience is that in my world the world I grew up in marrying a non-Jew let alone converting to Christianity
2: many families would sit shiva as if the child died and for all intents and purposes they would treat that child as if he or she was dead that wasn't the case in my home But
1: it certainly was like the worst tragedy short of going to the ovens that could happen to you. So when you announced this to us, the only way I can deal with it
2: in a rational way was to stop being a father and start becoming a high school guidance counselor. Yeah And distance myself from the emotional aspect and treat it the way I would treat kids who were talking to me about taking drugs, drugs, committing a crime, self-harming, stuff like that, all of which was relevant to becoming a Christian at that point, as yeah. far as I was concerned.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense, um, because I, I realized that. There was a lot of baggage, that came, cultural baggage, um, ethnic baggage that came along with saying, for, for a Jew in an observantly Jewish family whose identity was central to our identity was being Jewish, that it com- immediately images of men wearing crosses on their chests. Swinging swords and beheading our ancestors and our ancestors' neighbors. That's what it means to be Christian. There's some of that memory that comes with it.
2: Well, it's not just a memory. I mean, my mother literally fled Russia and lived through pogroms. I mean, she literally saw people's heads getting cut off by Cossacks at Easter time just because the victims were Jewish.
0: Right. So I know these, I know these stories. I mean, these stories are very much still alive in us. So we had the conversation and uh, we'll, we'll get to the letter that you wrote that came about a month later, but uh, I do need to provide some insight into um, the other character in this play. (laughs) My mother,
2: So be, care, my father and be I had careful because she's going to listen to this podcast okay. <laughs> and, well, you will, and you will have to pay the price for anything you say.
0: I know. Well, I, I know the first thing she's going to say is, I know you remember it that way. <laughs> well, um, this is the way it was. So as as uh, someone famous once said, so I, I had this long conversation with with my dad and then I went inside and it was time to tell my mother Phyllis. And I said, um, I, I didn't warm up or anything. I just rolled out with it. I said, mom, I don't know how to tell you this, so I'm just going to tell you I'm a Christian. And then she didn't really have an immediate response. She sort of, it looked like she was a little dazed and she almost floated into another room as if I wasn't even there. so I followed into the room and I said, mom, I don't know if you heard me. I, I, I wanted to tell you that I'm a Christian now. And then she got her wits about her to, to a degree. And she said, I'm sorry. I just never thought I'd have a son who was. And she was. Searching for the words and she finally said, walking with Jesus. <laughs> and then the next thing she said, she yells into the other room. She yells for you, Ronnie. Duhast,
2: our son is a born-again Republican. (laughs) I'm sure when you write the play, that's how you will write it, but I don't remember it that way at all. But uh, that's okay. Your version's probably more entertaining than what really happened. The way Bob remembers it.
0: I can't believe you guys gang up on me. It's as if, I, you know, it's as if I create this thing whole cloth, like it never happened. Well, I mean, I'm traumatized. Is- I'm traumatized to this day because my parents, if they don't like something that happened or even an element of something that happened, they go ahead and pretend that it didn't really happen. But they try to appease me to it in a very Jewish way. We know you remember it that way. <laughs>
2: You know, people think gaslighting started with Charlie Chaplin's movie. No, it goes back to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
0: Arguably even before then. Uh, you know, Cain and Abel. Um, anyway, um, so I, I I think it's worth... <laughs> let me give a little bit of background on how that decision came about. And then I want to ask you about that letter to the degree that you recall. It was a very long detailed letter. So um, the reader's digest version of how uh, a young man from a very observantly Jewish family went to an Orthodox synagogue growing up when I was growing up. We weren't just casual Jews. It was a part of the fabric of who we were as people, as a family. It was a, it was a, significant part of our lives. At the age of 29, 28, 29, somewhere around there, I I was doing business with a couple of guys that were very influential on various fronts. I was at a point in my life where I was looking for some mentorship, you know, in business. Um, Lisa and I were talking about having a family, you know, just being a, A good husband, and I certainly had good role models, but I was actively seeking mentors outside of my nuclear family. So two guys in particular were very influential, and um, one fellow, Hal. Every I saw him about once a month, and every month he'd give me a book to read, whether it was on business or being a husband or being, you know, a good citizen in the community, Um, even being a dad, even though I wasn't a father. Actually, no. Uh, Lisa was pregnant with Savannah, our oldest at the time. And I noticed that every book he gave me was what I can thought of as a, as a Jesus book, because a lot of it was based on scripture. Um, so there are quotes from the Bible in it and Hal was a guy that I knew grew up Jewish and he had a, at a certain point become a Christian. So for me, it was an annoyance. Like I really, really respected him in every other capacity, this whole christian thing just annoyed me um so i finally i finally confronted him about it i said how you know i respect you so much i really appreciate what you're teaching me and all of the information uh that i'm gleaning from these these books that you're recommending but i got to tell you man like jesus ain't my thing you know so what's up with you you were jewish and now you're some christian dude and What's up man? Um so Al <laughs> sort of took it as a challenge and he and he said uh well here's the thing. Um yeah, I am a Christian now and I know what that means and I also know what it means to be Jewish. You know what it means to be Jewish, but you don't have the first clue about what it means to be a Christian. So he gave me another book. And I read the book. It was called um I think it was called More Than a Carpenter. Uh by a a pretty well-known um I I, I don't know if you'd call him an apologist, but uh, you know, he, he, he wrote this book about try, trying to make an, a more empirical case for the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And I thought you, you can't really make that case empirically, but I read the book. It was kind of a short book, but it intrigued me enough because there was enough contextual information, historical literary information in there to say, now, wait a second, I can't just dismiss this out of hand. And it really pissed me off, frankly. So it, it sort of opened the door for a whole season of, I, I, if, if, we, if we had a record of it and we looked back and the record indicated that I read on average about 10 hours a day for a period of about six months, that wouldn't surprise me. I don't know if it was a little more or a little less, but it was, it was a, an obsession for quite a few months because I wasn't just... Once I finished that first book, I dove in and I was reading C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel, but I was also reading theology, uh, not just Christian theology. But once I came to a point of thinking, "Holy cow! There's something. There's something else here." But I better not just go down this one tunnel. I better open myself up to learning more about different religions, different philosophies. First to start to zero in on fundamental questions that were important existential questions that were important um as well as to gather information about frankly what made the most sense what was coherent and cohesive and then finally through this whole time i I still hadn't read the new testament so I finally cracked it open. Hal recommended I start with the book of James, which was an interesting book to start with because it's written it, the the opening address is to the 12 tribes or something like that. It was uniquely written to um, Jewish people. And some of the issues that the, the writer of that letter was dealing with were the kinds of issues that resonated with me, the faith versus works kind of a thing. Um, was a new concept to me. So it introduced, it introduced me to it. I'm oversimplifying a great deal here, but it was a good book to start with. But then I just start, I went to Matthew one and I just read through the whole new Testament, not quite in one sitting, but in two, maybe over the course of two days. And very early in that first book, Matthew, I get to what I recognized as a Hello. Devar Torah, which is, Hey, um, Dad, do you you want to describe what a Devar Torah is? I
1: canceled that
0: call. Oh, for crying out loud. Are you kidding me?
2: Give me one second. Okay.
1: Are
2: you on a thing? I canceled. I understand. Oh, okay. Sorry, Quack. (laughs) That, that, I'm, that, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if that's
0: something we should leave in. It might be worth leaving in. <laughs> that,
2: that, that was Phyllis. Yeah. Okay. That was Mama Phyllis.
0: Yeah. So uh, you want to describe for us what a Devar Torah is?
2: Yes. We read the entire Torah every single year. And we break it up into readings on every Shabbos and every Saturday morning. A Devar Torah is someone's analysis, interpretation, insights uh, of a particular Torah reading. It's um, someone's take on what the Torah is trying to tell us in our everyday lives.
0: Right, right. So I had sat through many Devar Torahs, whether it was going to shul on Saturday mornings or going to Shabbaton um, you know, a gathering of, you, of young people, youth groups. Yeah, youth groups. Um, so about five chapters in, I get to this Jesus character giving what I recognize as the Torah, And frankly, it was one of, if not the most profound Torah I'd ever read or heard. What I didn't realize was I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. So it, it really just drew that reading that sermon that early on in the first book of the new Testament is really what drew me into the rest of the, that's one of the reasons I couldn't put it down. And by the time I was done, I just, I, after months and months of this obsessive, seeking out the truth and reading. And I said, at a certain point, I'm just going to have to make this decision. And frankly, I knew that it was the most inconvenient of the choices because I, I could have gone home and said, you know, I'm a Buddhist, uh, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist. And that would have been, Oh, interesting. You know, like, but being a Christian, especially an evangelical Christian, you know, I mean, setting aside the historical baggage that it comes with contemporary American baggage.
1: It had the same impact
2: as if you came home and said you were a Muslim. Oh, that's that interesting. This, that that would have had the same impact. Um, to a Jew in America in the late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, someone who says they're a Hindu or a Buddhist is like saying you're a Republican or uh, a socialist or, you know, uh, something like that. But saying you're a Christian or a Muslim is saying that you're rejecting Judaism. And you have moved to the other side, the side that's been killing Jews for three, for, you know, for 2,000 years. Whether that was true or not true doesn't change
1: the impact that it had on a Jewish family. Yeah.
0: So recall a little bit about the subsequent weeks after we had the conversation and, you know, your thought process. What went into that letter? What share a little bit about about the content of that letter, as you can remember it.
2: At that point in my life, Jesus Christ and the Easter Bunny like in the same category. Believing in Jesus Christ
1: was like believing in the Easter Bunny. Like, how could you believe
2: in something as ridiculous as that? Um, because I didn't know a lot about Jesus and I hadn't read the gospels at that point in my life. And, um, you know, it's, it it was like saying, I, I have this friend who's a witch doctor and I believe he's God. So that that's where I was coming from. The second thing is that God was not important. Being Jewish was very important in our lives, but God was irrelevant to me. I wasn't Jewish and practicing Judaism because I believed in God. I really didn't care whether there was a God or not. The question was irrelevant to me. My attitude was if God came down and bit me on the backside today, I would still be the same person. Nothing would change in my life. So who cares? Yeah. It's a silly question. But being Jewish was just and continues to be just as fundamental as my gender, you know, everything that's important to me. So that, that's, that's the place I was coming from. As a result, as I recall, and you correct me if I'm wrong, none of my conversation had to do with theology. All of it had to do with Jewish guilt. No, I, I don't think you're giving yourself
0: enough credit. Well, I don't know. I can't remember how deep you went into theology, because it wasn't a part of your, it, you weren't, I wouldn't say that you were necessarily fluent in theology at that point, or it wasn't primary for you. There was a lot of Jewish guilt, but each, each paragraph was a different arrow in your quiver that you were using. And it, there was some Jewish guilt. There was some historical perspective, a lot of historical perspective.
2: My background was in history, European
0: history. Right, right. So that, that, that was a strong weapon for you, if I can use that word, but there was family history. There was a sense of filial obligation. There was a lot of emotional appeal. Um, there was logical appeal. There was some theology, phil- philosophy. So you were arguing from a philosophical standpoint. It was a very, it was a long way. It was 10 page, single spaced. It was a long letter. There's a lot in there. And I was coming from a different mindset at that point. I was already, uh, I was already studying Ravi Zacharias's work who later became a friend and a mentor. So I was in more of a, more of a debate mode. I felt that, that this could be a contest in a way, not, not that's not a fair way to put it, but sort of a contest with spiritual, spiritual points, um, spiritual stakes, if you will. So what, what I did was, um, I started answering the letter one paragraph at a time, but, uh, so, but we were emailing back and forth. So as I was sending a reply, my dad, (laughs) you, you were replying to my replies and then it just literally over the course of 3 years we went more i mean in some ways the conversation is still continuing but um the the f- subsequent 3 years was especially packed with long communication long emails back and forth and one of the things that we did was we started <laughs> we started recommending books to each other partly As a way to prove a point, you know, if you read this book, you'll see what I mean. You know, so one of the books that you sent me was, "You take Jesus, I'll take God."
2: (laughs) Do you remember that? I Even know where I got it from, I do remember it.
0: Yeah, there were other books that were much more um, effective. You, I think it was you, and at this time that you shared some really good ones, um, Joseph Campbell's work.
2: Was right. I was into Joseph Campbell back then.
0: Yeah. Was it also at this time that you shared Solzhenitsyn? I'm
2: thinking. I'm, I, I, I'm thinking more maybe Victor Frankel.
0: Frankl. Yeah. I because I read Frankel and Solzhenitsyn's. Uh, they were they were similar in the some of the conclusions that they arrived at. But uh, I shared some of the C.S. Lewis stuff, A Mere Christianity. It was years later that we started reading Tom Wright's work that we, N.T. Wright is sort of a continuation as I see it of great English scholars like G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. But yeah, we shared, we shared books, recommendations with each other. we discussed those books. And over the years, the conversation has just evolved. So that, I wanted to share a little bit about that by way of background. I also want to share a little bit more about your background, Dad. You, you grew up in in Brooklyn, New York, T- tell us about where you were born, where you grew up, how that formed your worldview, religiously, politically, culturally. Oh gosh!
2: Um, most important thing that you, that folks need to know is that I'm a first generation American. <laughs> that um, we were always much closer to my mom's family, and that whole family came to America in 1921 in steerage, uh one of the last boats that was admitted to the country before the immigration rules changed. And they were fleeing pogroms from Russia. My whole family, I grew up on stories, things my mother actually witnessed and lived through of Jews being killed by Christians, mostly at Easter time after passion plays in the church. I grew up in a neighborhood that was mostly Italian and Jewish. More Italian than Jewish, but there was really nobody else in my life. Everybody else were people who I saw on the subways. Before, before
0: you go into that chapter, did you get to talk to Uncle Saul Krivel about, um, his, because he was, he was older than Baba. And he was old enough to have been politically engaged. One of the reasons they came to
2: this country was to keep Uncle Saul out of jail. Yeah. He was about to be picked up by the, um, whatever the equivalent, uh, uh, I think it was called the Checker in those days, whatever the equivalent of the Soviet secret police was. He was about to be picked up and jailed, as many of his friends were, for Zionist activities in Russia.
0: So, Zionists, they were, they were working towards the formation of the Israel state.
2: My uncle, our uncle Saul, was already collecting money for Israel. Twenty-five years before there was an Israel. Yeah. Very active in the Zionist movement.
0: Was Was he? Did he have any involvement, or at least sympathy for any one of those political movements? Did Did he sympathize with the Bolshevik Revolution or anything like that? Or was he not? Was Israel was his thing?
2: They lived. It, they lived through a time where their village, their shtetl, was literally on the front lines of world war one and from 1914 until 1921 when they left their shtetl was a war zone first world war one then the russian revolution and then the russian civil war if uh, the people who are listening to this don't have a, a historical perspective you can look it up on Wikipedia or something, but uh, basically their shuttle was right in a war zone, and the only thing everybody had in common who was fighting white Russians, red Russians, polish people, German they all hated Jews. that's the one the one common <laughs> <That was> thread <laughs> the one common thread they all hated Jews, and um I mean, I grew up on these stories of my mom coming out of the basement of a house at the age of eight and seeing her friend, contemporary neighbor carrying the heads of her two parents.
0: Yeah. Rosie told me, Rosie told me there was one, one year where she and Baba hid in a haystack for the better part of a day. Yeah. While the Cossacks were coming through.
2: And my mom was like eight years old at the time. Right. So, I mean, these weren't fairy tales. This is part of my family history. It's what I grew up with. Um, I grew up over a grocery store in a working class neighborhood in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst. We were poor, working class. We always had food at a grocery store, but we didn't have a lot of money. And my life as a kid was kind of like the kind of life you see on the Bowery Boys, or we comedies, where after school you were in the street, or Hebrew school, and nobody knew where you were or what you were doing, and they didn't care as long as you got home when the streetlights went on for dinner. So that, that's my background. Um, I'm the first person in my nuclear family to have graduated from college. Mazel tov.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, so. Uh, when, when did you start becoming interested in politics?
1: Ah.
2: <sighs> <laughs> I was in sixth grade. I was in I was in sixth grade. And my father had gotten out of the grocery store and became an insurance agent. And it was the first time in their lives they had enough disposable income to go on a vacation. They went to Manhattan to the Barbizon Plaza Hotel. And I don't know if it was for a weekend, I don't remember, or a week or whatever it was. It was the first time I was ever away from home. They put me on a bus to my aunt's house in Flemington, New Jersey. And I read Catch-22. On oh. the bus. What?
0: Wait, you said sixth grade? Yeah. That's quite a book for a sixth grader.
2: Well, it was a good book.
0: Right. So the Korea War had already happened, but Vietnam was not happening yet.
2: It wasn't quite, yeah. It was like just the beginning rumblings of something going on in Southeast Asia.
0: Yasserian, right? Is that, is that the main character's name?
2: Yes. Yasserian. And... Uh, I remember reading the book, and I finished it at my aunt Beatrice's house. Holy cow! Uh,
0: You—that's—I well, so, mean—that's a—it's a big book, especially for you, when eleven years old. Like that's—it's
2: <laughs> sixth grade. Yes, I'm about eleven years old, and I—and you know, it was the first time that I began to question. The power structure and what this was all about. Oh, and, that's, that's quite a burden for an 11 year old. Well, you know, but I, you know, I, this is my recollection. And it kind of like was the awakening, my political awakening. Right. And um, how
0: much younger is David than you? Da- uh, he's three years younger than I am. So he was eight uh, or so at the time. Uh so th- yeah. so he and Dickie were were too young to be hippies yet. <laughs>
2: right. Well the thing is my 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 uncle Jerry and, and Aunt Beatrice were like you know, they were educated, really intelligent. Yeah.
0: Very prominent doctor, uh, Jerry was.
2: And 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 they came from a left-wing political background in the Depression. Oh, so they were kind of like rich hippies before there was anything called hippies, right. uh, you know, and they opened my eyes up to a world that I had never been exposed to before. And my political development and consciousness grew from that.
0: So when you started coming to your own perspective, your own worldview, what were, what were some of your leanings?
2: My my aunt and uncle
0: introduced me to Pete Seeger. What a great gift.
2: One of their close friends was a guy named Jim Peck, who was one of the Freedom Riders. Oh. I met him personally. Wow. And because he was my family's friend, it had a tremendous impact on me. And I was exposed to all this stuff for the first time in my life. Ironically, or maybe not so ironically, For much of my elementary school career, I was in the dumb class and suddenly somebody woke up when I was in fifth grade and decided I was smart. And I ended up in the smart class. And from sixth grade on through high school, because I was in the, quote, smart class, I was exposed to all of this um, interesting, quite frankly, left wing literature, music. Uh, and influences and it's stuck I mean going to Greenwich Village when you're in 10th grade and listening to uh, to Bob Dylan yeah you know on on the
1: stage of uh, the gaslight on Bleecker Street
2: it changes you and that's been an influence in my life I mean at this point I view myself as an extreme centrist an FDR (laughs) kind of like liberal But I was open to that kind of influence politically, which created a problem for me with you, Corey, because here, as a parent, I had raised you to be an independent person. And now you were expressing that independence in a way that I really wanted to take you and lock you in a room and subject you to brainwashing until you got things right. (laughs) Right. So like, you know, you, I raised you to be independent and God damn it. You became independent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So that's all by way of, of some background. We have a little bit of time left and, um, I, I want to leave it to you to choose a big topic that we can just introduce. I have two options. And if you want to choose another, we can choose another. One is this will be a running theme in the show. Introduce the problem with, quote unquote, them, the problem with them. Or we're going to try to release this episode in the next week or two. Um, So before the upcoming election. So the other election. Oh, yeah. Have you heard about it? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so the danger, the danger, if we go down this road and prognosticate about the state of the race, the danger is that every day something monumental, something epic can happen. It's funny. I I was sad when um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Uh, She was such a great contributor to to the nation and to law. As a justice, I was especially fond of of stories of how she and Antonin Scalia were such great, great pals. Their friendship was very much the spirit of what I'd like to be a theme in in
2: this show. Well, I mean, our relationship is very much consistent with that, with that theme. I mean, because when you became a Christian, my attitude was you joined them. Right. The wrong side. You're in the dark side now. Yeah. And I was forced into a choice and to confront what my values really were. Unlike my possibly grandparents, I learned that my relationship with my son was much more important to me than my relationship with my ethnicity, religion, identity. Was, I made the decision that there was gonna be nothing that would result In losing you and my relationship with you. So
1: that's one. Once I came to that
2: understanding, that changed everything because it meant that I had to listen to you. It meant that I had to take you seriously. It meant that I had to offer you a level of acceptance and respect that I never would have predicted that I was capable of giving someone who was becoming a born again, Christian, because for me, born again, Christians meant Jimmy Swagger and yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff on uh, non-network TV on Sunday mornings, you know, so it forced me to educate myself. It forced me to see the world in a slightly different, especially the Christian world in a very different way. And because of the job and my professional training, which was as a mediator, And a conflict resolution specialist, and a crisis response person. It forced me to bring those skills and mindset into my home, into the intimacy of my life, my real life, yeah, my professional life, and that was a good thing.
0: Yeah, it is a good thing. I mean, look how many folks we've brought into our conversation over the years. It it is a unique conversation, but now, more than ever. Conversations like these are what's missing and what's needed because too many conversations are, they're not conversations. They're rhetorical ping pong and often much worse than that. They're opportunities for people to express hatred for some other. They're vents, outlets for folks to give voice. To what they've been learning elsewhere and what they've been learning is how to define and mischaracterize large groups of people with whom they don't identify and generalize and villainize you know so right now i experienced this the other day i usually don't pipe in on threads where there are a lot of people that I don't have existing relationships with
2: threads on Facebook.
0: Yeah. But I did. And it was, um, a a fellow that I, I really like, he's, he's, he's a very, very nice man, caring person who posted a list of accomplishments of, of Trump, you know, legislative accomplishments. So he, he's a, He's a fellow that I know from, he was a pastor at a church that we had gone to for a long time. So I decided to, a lot of the accomplishments were sort of a challenge. They were listed by starting the the writer. He, he just, he shared it. So he didn't write it, but the writer of this list started each accomplishment with, do you dislike Trump because, and then all these legislative things. And they were some of them were spun, arguably, some of them you can look at and, oh, I didn't know he was involved in that, you know? So, so it, it did, it was an interesting exercise, but the way that it was done is reflective of our time, that it was all contentious. So I answered my friend by saying, I dislike Trump because, and I quoted scripture, you know, not just a part of one verse, but I, I think I ended up I I just wanted to share with him what was foundational to me. Because I the Bible to me is authoritative. It's a it's a great frame of reference at the very least for what God would consider virtues as well as what God would consider vices and sin. So I shared, I think it was four different passages from four different books, Hebrew Bible, New Testament. And boy, oh boy. I haven't looked this morning, but this is so. This was Sunday, I think Sunday Sunday evening, and the comments were. I mean, if you if if we counted them up, and somebody said there were two hundred and fifty comments on there, all of which were all I did was quote scripture, and I'll tell you, people just people, there's some sort of permission structure for what I imagine are otherwise perfectly nice people to be. Just flat out
1: unkind,
0: vicious.
2: It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you know, I have this political group on Facebook. Right. And there are people that I've been talking to for eight years. In the last 15 years, I've become very, very religious, and God is a reality in my life now. So, for example, look, I'm very open about despising Trump. I despised him 35 years ago. I'm the same age. I'm from New York. I've known Trump as a public figure for thirty-five, forty years, and he's been a despicable character consistently the entire time. That said, I oppose abortion. I support a um, balanced budget amendment. I would have voted for Kasich in twenty sixteen. I would vote for him in twenty twenty. Yeah, but every time. I talk about something about Donald Trump that pisses me off. I get a flurry of responses from people who accuse me of being a baby killer. Yeah, that that was a
0: phrase that was used. A communist, a Marxist, a a baby killer.
2: Put violence in the streets. Uh, I'm burning down buildings in um, Portland and Seattle. None of which is true. Right. You know, I'm a very law and law right. type of guy. Yes. Yeah, so, but this is what happens, you know, get labeled and, and I'm the enemy and I have to carry the baggage of everything that the people were talking to me uh, despise. Well, right. no, I
1: just, you know.
0: Yeah. So that's exactly the. Trait that is running rampant in our culture right now that is worth working to cut through. Right. If I say that I am a fiscal conservative or a social libertarian, which I am, there might be a, an individual. Pres- oh, I'll give you one. So <laughs> I made a mistake, but got kind of attacked by a, a separate group of people, very different group of people. Um, I said that it looks like Amy Coney Barrett has a very admirable resume. You know, she has a a resume that's very admirable. And in fact, it looks like her judicial philosophy is a different kind of conservative than some of my friends think. So when, when a lot of my friends say conservative judges, they're thinking of legislators. They're not thinking of judges. But a judicial conservatism is a deference to the constitution and precedent, the way that we've seen John Roberts, he's a judicial conservative because he defers, even if he has a political leaning, there've been times when he's ruled in opposition to his political leaning. So to me, there's a difference between legislative conservatism and judicial conservatism. So anyway, I was trying to, and I don't know as much about it as someone like my friend, Steve Cohen, who's been in the law his whole career, you know, GLEGO, the guys, there are guys who would have a much more rounded, thorough understanding of, of this stuff than I would, who I, all of whom I hope to have on the show. But just saying that something that is not hateful about Amy Coney Barrett, boy, oh boy. Well, then I became a proxy for Trump, <laughs> you know, like
2: yeah, that, and, that's the other side of I me, mean, like on my own homepage, which is much more left wing than my persona on my political group. Yeah, I'll say something. Uh, t- a typical post I'll put up is uh, credit where credit is due. Moving the embassy to uh, Jerusalem was a really good thing and Trump deserves credit for it. Holy shit. Can I say, say shit? shit. Okay, holy shit! I mean, now I'm becoming an apologist for Trump, and I get all these responses about how Trump is like Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. No, no, no. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem was a good thing. Yeah. You know, you know, maybe you know this this uh, this this new replacement for NAFTA isn't as great a thing as. Trump makes it out to be, but it's an improvement on NAFTA. Give the guy some credit. I still hate the man. I still would rather vote for a house plant than Donald Trump. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that he's never accomplished anything that was positive.
0: Right. So that's uh, I think that's a good, good place to wrap it up. We got a little bit about your background, uh, some context to our relationship and our conversations some of the issues of the day and, and why we're doing this thing. I think it's, uh, I think it's going to be fun and hopefully, hopefully we'll uh, be able to cut through some of that nonsense. There's just too much nonsense out there, you know? So and
2: hopefully we'll have people on the show where I'll learn something.
0: That's the idea. That's the idea. I think, you know, if, if we surround ourselves with smart people of goodwill, who come into a conversation in good faith. I mean, that's the idea is is to, to learn something new about someone, to better understand a perspective I hadn't considered before. I might still come away still disagreeing with that person or that perspective, but at least I can give it a fair hearing as opposed to have only a very surface level understanding just deep enough to develop a bumper sticker long retort for it, Uh, that that doesn't do anybody any good, clearly. Um, But I I think it defines our culture right now.
2: And and contrary to popular opinion, I have had conversations on Facebook with people for eight years who have changed my opinion on key issues. My opinion has changed on issues like gun control, Hmm. capital punishment, Uh, tax policy because of the insights of people that I've met on Facebook through my political group.
0: So we'll end it here with how you think the Mets are going to do next season (laughs) and who do they need? What moves do they need to make over the off season?
2: Well, I haven't been following the Mets very much for the last two or three years. Oh, they're hard to follow. You know, and. DeBrom is,
0: is just, he's just a treat to watch. He's such an artist.
2: He's kind of like Walter Johnson. You know, he's the greatest pitcher of his time on the most. um... (laughs) The senators. (laughs) That's right.
0: The Mets are like the senators and the Yankees.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there you go. But. No, I don't, think, I don't think. I don't think. it's going to be fun to watch the Mets for a long time. Maybe, maybe the new ownership will do something in two or three, so. In two or three years, we'll have something to root for.
0: Yeah, yeah. They got some good players. They got some fun players. That uh, yeah. I, I always hopeful. Always hopeful. Wait till next year. Being a Mets fan is kind of like being a Jew, because if you're not suffering, you're just not trying. <laughs> Anyway, well, Pops, it was good to, good to talk to you as always tell mom, I send my love and, um, see you, see you next time. Love to leave certain kids. You bet. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart, so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.